Why is it that we're so deceived at times? That what, well, the world or other things have to offer us when there are fountains and rivers of refreshing water. God uses his prophets to warn and beg and conjole both Israel and Judah. In your bulletins, you had two handouts today, like last week. And one of them, uh, it shows the prophets and the kings. And it's been the handout over the years that I have used the most to try to understand completely when all these things are literally written. And it's helpful. It's helpful for you to be able to know where the kings are and where the prophets are, especially as you read through the scriptures. So hopefully that will encourage you. But what we find is that God relentlessly tries to convince Israel to turn from their wickedness so they can enjoy a relationship with him. Not a weekly relationship or a monthly relationship or an annual relationship, but a daily relationship. God's overarching theme of all the scriptures is that I love you and I want you to be a perfect part of my community. But this agreement is two ways. I will be faithful to you and I will love you and I will encourage you. But you need to love me with all of your heart. But Israel and Judah rejected God his love, and his truth. They worshipped both Yahweh and the Canaanite gods, resulting in a horrible, inaccurate reflection of God's character to this world. Well, it came time for God to act. And he did so decisively. If you would, would you turn your Bibles to 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. We're going to be spending our time today in 2 Kings, and we're going to jump over to Isaiah in just a little bit. But God chose to empower this gigantic pagan nation called Assyria. And God gave Assyria power to invade, defeat, and eventually deport the northern ten tribes back to Assyria. You don't need to know a lot of dates, I think, in the Bible. But if you would remember or try to remember two dates, I think it will be critical. Remember that Israel was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Samaria or Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. Well, what we're talking about today is that, well, Assyria came in and finally conquered the northern tribes of Israel in 722 B.C. That will be one of the dates I think that will be important for you to understand But we're going to move on. 2 Kings chapter 17. I'm going to start at verse 5. Then the king of Assyria invited or invaded the entire land, and for three years he besieged the city of Samaria. 
Finally, in the ninth year, King Hosea's reign, Samaria fell. And the people of Israel were exiled to Assyria. Down in verse 7, this disaster came upon the people of Israel because they worshipped other gods. They sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them safely out of Egypt and had rescued them from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And down in verse 13, again and again, the Lord sent his prophets and seers to warn both Israel and Judah, turn from your evil ways, obey my commands and decrees, the entire law that I've commanded your ancestors to obey. In verse 14, but the Israelites would not listen. Just like that, in just a few paragraphs, all right, Israel, the northern ten tribes, cease to exist. They are gone forever, shall we say, if you've been following this story, escorted from the garden. Remember, the story of God started way back in Genesis when he put two people in a perfect environment and set them up so well that they might be able to enjoy each other and what God has created Well, man chose at that time to go a different direction, thinking that maybe God wasn't going to come through, or maybe he was just deceived. We're not sure. But anyway, tiny Judah is left, just two tribes, and this is what's left of God's special people. At this time, Hezekiah was Judah's king. He was king during the northern ten tribes uh, defeat. And the scriptures tell us, and this is so cool, he was a good king. Look at 2 Kings chapter 18, and we're going to start at verse uh, 3. All right? He, or Hezekiah, did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. He removed the pagan shrine, smashed the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah poles. He broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. Verse 5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after his time. He remained faithful to God in everything. And he carefully obeyed all of the commandments the Lord had given Moses. So the Lord was with him, and Hezekiah was successful in everything he had done. Because God was honored, and Hezekiah followed God with all of his heart, God rewarded Hezekiah for his faithfulness and made him a great success. But if we understand what's happening here, Judah is still small. Assyria is still large. Assyria not only wanted Israel, but they wanted Judah too. So camped right outside of Jerusalem, we have this massive Assyrian army. The mighty Assyrian army. It just annihilated Israel. 
And they were just about ready to come in on Judah. The Assyrian king offers Hezekiah a chance to surrender. And it's, well, circumstances, the way they were, he would be wise to surrender. Or would he? Let's pray before we look into what God is doing in a very special way. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we come together to worship you. We can honor you, Father, with our words and with our offerings. And we know, God, that your spirit is so abundantly active. We pray even now, Father, that your spirit would be so actively working in every one of our lives. That it would take your word and would help us understand and it would comfort and it would encourage and it would strengthen each one of us. We are so grateful for the other churches, not only in this area, but all over the country and all over the world that are teaching your word and worshiping you as God. We pray for them and we pray that you would strengthen them. In particular, Father, we would like to pray for three churches today. We'd like to pray for Connection Church and Northridge Church and Grace Point Church. We know, God, again, that there are believers who are hearing your word. And we pray, Father, as folks all over are strengthened as a result of spending time with you and God's people, that your world would change that we would be salt and light wherever you send us. We pray especially today here, Father, for Grace Point. We pray, dear Father, that you would give us an understanding that it would just not be another story, but it would be something that would move us. In Jesus' name, amen. For some of you who are newer uh, to our fellowship, we, we are using the story to take different parts of the scripture and try to paint an accurate picture of our amazing God from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we're in the 16th chapter of our story. And it's been kind of hard these last few weeks because God's people have not been really cooperative. They've been, well, going for the drop of water rather than the fountain of water. So here we are, at least the time in Judah's history, where the Assyrians are pretty ready to annihilate. They're ready to do exactly the same thing that just happened up in Israel. And so the Assyrian leadership sends a message to King Hezekiah. This is so cool. Look at 2 Kings chapter 18, starting at verse 19. All right? Then the Assyrian king's chief of staff told them to give this message to Hezekiah. This is what the great king of Assyria says. Why are you trusting in that what makes you so confident? Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on that you have rebelled against me? How come you're not listening? Okay. Down to verse 22. But perhaps you will say to me, we are trusting in the Lord our God. But isn't he the one who is insulted by Hezekiah? 
Didn't Hezekiah tear down his shrines and altars to make everyone in Judah and Jerusalem worship only at the altar here in Jerusalem? Oh, I will tell you what. Strike a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can find that many to ride on. And then with your tiny army. How can you think of even challenging this amazingly powerful empire? That was the first message. But the Assyrians didn't really think that maybe that would have gotten through. So they literally send their messengers to the wall of the city. And at the wall of the city, they start talking directly to those, well, um, Jews that were in Judah at that moment. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 28. And this is what they're shouting to them. Then the chief of staff stood and shouted in Hebrew to the people on the wall. Listen to this message from the great king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let King Hezekiah deceive you. He will never be able to rescue you from my power. Don't let him fool you into trusting in the Lord by saying, Oh, the Lord will surely rescue us. This city will fall into the, or this city will never fall into the hands of the Assyrian king. Verse 31, don't listen to Hezekiah. Whoa. So can you picture this? Hundreds of thousands of warriors outside the city ready to come in. He is trusting God. Israel didn't. But he came before God and he knew God's power. He understands God's authority And he knew God would protect him. But things look a little scary at the moment. This is what Hezekiah does in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. He hears all this, and all the people perhaps are kind of coming to him. But he says this, When King Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes, put on burlap, and went into the temple of the Lord. It's probably not our response for the most part, but let me again try to put you into this cultural scenario. What really happened is that um, putting on burlap is a sign of desperation and despair and grief and mourning. Hezekiah was humbling himself, and he goes to the temple, the place where God dwells, Right now, everyone who is a believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. But back then, God, the place where God dwelt was a temple. So he goes there. And after he goes there, Hezekiah then sends a delegation to the prophet Isaiah and asks for prayer. So he goes to the temple, he's praying, he's seeking God's face, and he's saying, you know what, I have to hear from God. He couldn't go to, you know, his Bible at the moment, he didn't have one of those like we do, but he had Isaiah, the prophet of God who spoke God's word. And so he sent them to Isaiah. And this is Isaiah's message, 2 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 6. This is what the Lord says. 
Do not be disturbed by this blasphemous speech against me from the Assyrians' king's messengers. Listen, I myself will move against him, and the king will receive a message that he is needed at home. So he'll return to his land where I will have him killed with a sword. Well, apparently King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, uh, didn't know all this was going on, but Hezekiah was not moving very fast. Just wasn't. So King Sennacherib decides, I'm going to send another message to you, Hezekiah. You don't seem to be moving that fast. You're not surrendering the way that I had hoped you to surrender. So this is his message. Chapter 19, starting at verse 10. This is a message for King Hezekiah of Judah. Don't let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you with promises that Jerusalem will not be captured by the king of Assyria. And he goes on with some relentless words, saying, are you kidding me? Would you please surrender? Your God is not going to take care of you. But look at Hezekiah's second response. It's in verse 14. After Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it, he went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord. Amazing prayer. O Lord, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. Does this sound a little bit like David, you know, right here? You know, right before he hit that that, uh, impossible situation of Goliath? It it was his perspective. Back to verse 17. It is true, Lord, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all those nations. I'm not doubting it. And they have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them. But of course, God, the Assyrians could destroy them. They were not gods at all. Only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. If you underline your Bible, I'd underline Verse 19. Now, O Lord, our God, rescue us from his power. Then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Oh. Hezekiah prays in response to what God is telling him. The situation and circumstance looks pretty dark and dismal. Just look outside the gates. Those guys are ready to come in and eat us up. They're more powerful. They have more weapons. We're dead. The king keeps asking Hezekiah to give up. But Hezekiah goes back. His allegiance to God and his understanding how big God is and how powerful God is, nothing is shaking him at this moment. And he goes and he spreads out this letter. And he says, okay, God, look. Look at what this guy's saying. Do you realize that he is maligning your name and questioning your power? 
I love it that Hezekiah turns to his true source of strength. It wasn't himself and it wasn't his armies. He got on his knees. Hezekiah understood God and God's desire to reflect his character to all the world. He's saying, Lord, this will show everyone who you are. Protect us. Protect us. Well, then Isaiah gives a passionately long response. I'm just going to read a few verses. In 2 Kings chapter 19, you guys are doing great. I know I'm whipping through this. But chapter 19, starting at verse 32. This is almost near the end of Isaiah's response. And he's telling this to Hezekiah. His armies will never enter Jerusalem. They will not even shoot an arrow at it. If you would stop right there, and Isaiah's telling you this, and the army is camped right outside with their chariots and weapons, either you are going to believe that Isaiah really is the spokesperson of God, or you are going to think he is crazy. I mean, not even an arrow? Excuse me? And I maybe Isaiah stopped even at that moment and said, hey, look, I'm the messenger, okay? Don't get mad at me, Hezekiah. I'm the messenger. I'm just telling you what God told me. Not even an arrow. Whoa. They will not march outside its gates with its shields, nor build banks of earth against the wall to be able to get over The king will return to his own country by the same road he came. He will not even enter the kingdom, says the Lord. And look at this. Again, underline this in your Bibles. For my own honor, verse 34, and for the sake of David, my servant, I will defend this city and protect it. I am sure... Hezekiah was relieved and also scared all at the same time. Okay, God, I got it. You're going to take care of this. It's not looking good. God, okay, we're going to do it. No, you're going to do it. How are you going to do this? And he went to sleep. Look at verse 35 and 36. This is amazing. All right. That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 soldiers. Oh. Wow. When the surviving Assyrians woke up, he didn't take all their lives. This army had at least 185,000 warriors. They found corpses everywhere. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp, returned to his own land, and you're going to find out was killed just a short amount later. When Isaiah said that everyone will know the tiny nation of Judah defeated the world's greatest power. Those were just words. Just words. 
But Hezekiah believed Isaiah. He said, okay, I'm going to bed. You said it, I'm going to sleep. And the next day, not only did they see the piles of corpses, but they saw whatever was left of the army just leaving. I mean, does that give you goosebumps? To see how God took care of this nation at this moment? I know, there's a lot of questions like, God took 185,000 lives. Why did that happen? How come there's war? What is going on? And those are all good questions. And I'm not going to even address them today. But God protected his nation. You would think at this time, Judah would stay on a good path, right? They didn't. They soon went astray. You're going to read through 2 Kings And what happens is after 29 years of faithful service, the next king, which is Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, is an evil one. He is the opposite of his father. And we'll hear more about that next week. But if we're honest, we see this roller coaster story of Judah's kings. And they should depress you. Some listen, some don't. Some listen, some don't. But as a result, as a result, we're going to spend just a little bit of time of the prophet Isaiah, one of Israel's greatest prophets. And and let me be honest again, Isaiah brings great hope, especially at the end of his 66 chapters. This is a pretty long book in the Old Testament. But like all prophets, Isaiah's primary message is aimed at calling people back to God away from their selfish and short-sighted behaviors. He recognizes again that Judah and Israel, but now just Judah, continually just wants a drop of water. And Isaiah says, oh, there's a fountain. There's refreshing rivers. There's all kinds of water for you, and you keep drinking out of cisterns that have cracks in them. You are trying to find hope and fulfillment and life outside of me, and I will give you life. Judah brings such hope in his prophecies. There's hope for Judah in spite of their rebellion, and and because God keeps his promises, it's about God. God will eventually bring them back to the land he promised them. God is an honorable God, and God will punish sin. Not because God is some killjoy, we keep saying this, but because we're missing out on all that God has planned for us. He wants us to experience life. Wow. Ultimately, Isaiah gives this reason for hope. And throughout all of his book, splattered especially in the last few chapters, you're going to hear Isaiah talk about the Messiah. The Messiah. The king who will eventually come. 
The king with great power and authority will, will reign. And you will experience such great joy in his kingdom. You need to keep looking forward to this Messiah. And although the Messiah wouldn't arrive for another 700 years, Isaiah's words shout. So turn to Isaiah with me, if you would. It's, it's a little bit further on, just about in the middle of your Bible. But let's look at Isaiah and put some things in perspective. As I said, Israel runs, for the most part, searches for living water, but comes up empty, just getting a drop or two, a quick thrill, and then, are, then it's parched. Mostly because of the culture around. Mostly because they listened to the Canaanites. Mostly because they thought the Canaanites had a lifestyle that was so desirous. They didn't really believe God. And so what God does after a while is eventually gives you what you want. You want a drop? Just get a drop. That's all. I can't force you into a relationship. I can't make you obey me and listen to me and experience life. I can't. I can't. But Isaiah continues to talk about life, the Messiah, and paradise or the new Jerusalem. Or what they have to look forward to. So let's look at some of his verses about life. Just to remind us, again, all the things that God has promised Israel. If you look at Isaiah chapter 48, starting at verse 17. This is what the Lord says. This is Isaiah talking to the children of Israel. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is good for you and leads you along paths you should follow. Oh, that you would listen to my commands, that you would have, then you would have had peace flowing like a gentle river and righteousness rolling over you like waves of the sea. Jump over to chapter 56. And you can see a lot more on the screen there. And you can write those down and check this out. And as Isaiah just pours his heart out, wanting the children of Israel to understand how much God loves them and wants them. But we're going to jump to chapter 56. Look at verses 6 and 7. I will also bless the foreigners. Um, by the way, it's probably most of us, okay? If you're not Hebrew or Jewish, you're called a Gentile. And the truth is, that's called a foreigner oftentimes in the scriptures. But I will bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him, who love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, and who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem, and I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my, nation, my temple will be called the house of prayer for all nations. Then he focused a lot on the Messiah. And if you would turn to me back in chapter 49, the Messiah, after years and years and years of being ruled uh, by corrupt kings and corrupt governments and corrupt nations, they heard often about this Messiah, this Messiah that would come and, and restore the kingdom. How cool is that? All right? 
in chapter 49, starting at verse 6. And he says this, you will do more, describing again Jesus, ultimately, but the Messiah. Then restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Look at chapter 53. Oftentimes, Isaiah chapter 53 is read uh, around Easter and read around Christmas. But it is a prophecy spoken 700 years before Jesus was born miraculously, saying the Messiah is going to come. It literally starts in chapter 52, about verse 13. But it begins to describe Jesus, who Jesus is, how Jesus loved us, how he would be scourged, how he would well, literally sacrifice himself to be able to gather each one of us because of his love. The sin debt had to be paid. And for all this time, the, lambs of sin, uh, uh, or the, the blood of lambs and goats just temporarily took away sins. But the Messiah, he's going to be bruised for our iniquities. He's going to take the penalty for our sin in chapter 53. And he will redeem us. This is great hope. If you look over to chapter 61, all right, uh, verses 1 and 2. This is a passage that if you mark in your Bible, you put Luke chapter 4 next to it. Because this is one of the things that literally Jesus did when he lived on this planet. He entered into the temple. He read this exact same passage, and let's read it, okay? But this is a passage about him. This is a prophecy about him. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This is why Jesus came. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim the captives will be released and the prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against his enemies. I have come to bring life and to bring justice and to rule with authority. And then lastly... Isaiah continually gave hope of what we would call the New Jerusalem. In chapter 54, we'll just go there. And again, you can mark down uh, the other, other texts and check that out later. But in chapter 54, verse 14, you will be secure under a government that is just and fair. Wow, just that alone. Just that promise alone of a, of a nation that continually was at warfare. Oh, what good words. Your enemies will stay far away. You will live in peace and terror will never come close. Oh, Isaiah. Isaiah was clear on who God was. Desired deeply that the children of Israel would listen wanted them to experience fountains and rivers of living water, not drops every once in a while to satisfy your urge. 
Oh, God's good plan. Jesus, the perfect king, the one to redeem and restore. When the Jews heard this, they would be drooling because they hadn't experienced this. And I got to be honest, hopefully not that I'm dishonest, but so should we be drooling. We should. God never breaks his promise. Think about this. Instead of thinking hundreds of years back, think right now of all the blessings and the promises of God and how so many of us worship God and a lot of other things. And we scurry around trying to get our thirst quenched when when we chase after things that don't bring honor to God and when we don't listen to God, we get the drops, the drops. God's love and his desire for relationship right now continues to shout. His promise of redemption should bring us great joy. But the enemy right here in this culture at this time is working hard. You don't need God. He said, don't eat that fruit, but really it's not that big of a deal. Go ahead and eat the fruit. Whoa. At first, our objects of affection seem harmless. But they quickly turn into a lifestyle of idol worship. If you're with us last week, we, we looked at Solomon and we looked at his son Man- or, or Solomon and we looked at a king called Manasseh. I am really sure Solomon never started off. You know what? I don't want to be anything like my dad David. Well, David gave him everything. God dumped on him even more. Solomon didn't wake up one day or start off and say, you know what, I really want to be rebellious and worship other gods. I guarantee it. But he started marrying some women. Another wife, another wife, another wife. Bring another concubine in. All right, what gods are you worshiping? Oh, that sounds like a good god. I'm going to worship God and I'm going to worship your God. Let's do this. And Solomon, at the end of his life, paid some horrible prices. And it continued. I don't think anyone in this room wants to sit there and say, you know what, I just want to compromise with God. But sometimes things sneak in. And if you listen to the lies of our culture, you're going to pay the price. How do we set up the church well so that it reflects God's character to our world? You see, the church is not a building, it's us. And realistically, we set up the church, or leaders do, or people do, in order for them to reflect God's character well wherever they go. 
We focus on loving God and understanding who God is and His character. So that as we spend time with Him, He chips away the things that don't reflect us well to the culture. We can try. But it's back to this relationship and listening to Him. It's loving God and loving others, and that's great. But how do we do that? Part of it is worship, and part of it is teaching, and part of it is ministry, and part of it is service. But we are here to help others love God so that it would be a natural and normal fruit of our lives of loving others well. In my opinion, as we interact with people here and interact with people outside, people should be pointed to Jesus. Why are you so kind? Why are you so gracious? How come you're so generous? How come you treat people like this? How come you... Well, I'll let you know. It's not because I'm really a good dude. It's because I follow a a Savior. And He's changed my life. And He's actually changing me. And He helps me love people that I don't even like. And He helps me forgive people that don't even deserve forgiving. And it helps me grace others. You know, I... I don't know what happens. It's that Holy Spirit living in me and it's changing me. And I tell you, I love God. I'm so grateful to be called His Son. Well, can anybody do this? Oh, yeah. And the conversations start. You've got another handout in your bulletin. Same one the last two weeks. And it's called Koinonia. And some of you folks are so well-connected. And some of you folks uh, do life together with others. But realistically, one of the earmarks of the early church, once this whole thing started, is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And the scriptures say this, that the believers continually gather together for the teaching of God's word and for koinonia or for fellowship and for worship or breaking of the bread and for prayer. Our culture says you don't need anybody else. But God says we are here for a reason. We want to help you, walk with you on this pathway so that you might love others because God's loved you. We're going to keep reminding you of this. And there's different groups and different ways that you can get involved so you can be part of community. No matter what age, no matter where you're at in your maturity level. And our hope is honestly to have everything buttoned down by Easter. You ask me, what about every group? What are the things that are happening? Some literally are happening right now. But we're trying to build a network so that come Easter time, that there will be an opportunity for everyone who desires to be part of one group or two groups. Maybe it's a smaller group. Maybe it's a larger group. But that you do life together. 
And so the response isn't, as soon as you put an X on that and hand that to me or any one of our leadership, oh, we'll be able to get right to it. We're going to contact you and encourage you, and we want to set you up well. You know, it's easy to judge Solomon and Manasseh and all these others that kind of did their own thing. But you know, one of the marks of Hezekiah, why he loved God so much, is that he listened to God's word. He did life together. He asked Isaiah, what are the things that I need to do? And he listened. Wow. You know, in each each time we teach, we talk about an upper story and a lower story. The upper story is every time we open up God's Word, we, we get a little better perspective of who God is. Sometimes our perspective of God doesn't make sense. Sometimes we need to think differently. But today, we looked at, we saw a powerful God. We saw a God whose Word and promises are sure. We saw a God who saves and redeems us and wants us to be able to live abundantly. But we also learned a whole lot of things, and I call it the lower story about us. And that's as we begin to recognize that, wow, humility is shown on our knees. That as we move forward as God followers, we need to spend time on our knees seeking God's face, asking for grace, Allowing him to work in your life. We see that God's word comforts and guides. And that's great in spite of what the world says and how many warriors are outside the fence. But we also saw that obedience requires intentionality and courage. There is no way that Hezekiah just sat back and just said, no big deal. He trusted God like crazy, but I think his knees were shaken. And that the God that we know and serve gives us hope. Hope for today, hope for tomorrow, hope for eternity. That is amazing to me. That is amazing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for stories all the way through the scriptures that help us understand what you want to do in our lives. Lord, we are so weak in our faith at times. And the question haunts me, why don't I believe you? And if I believe you, why doesn't it show? God, you have given us the key to quenching our thirst. You have been called the bread of life. And you and you alone can satisfy our hunger. But we don't believe that. We scurry. We run. There's other smaller gods that seem to take our attention. But God, are we fooling ourselves? Are, are we, Father, chasing after broken cisterns? 
we ask you, God, that you would change our lives today. That you would help us be intentional and courageous. Father, if that means getting in a small group to help us do life, I pray we do that. If that means simply opening up the scriptures every single day to hear from your voice, I pray we do that. Father, if we're lacking and we're not spending time on our knees seeking your face and listening to you, I pray, Father, that changes even right now. God, I pray if we are playing games that we quit playing games. You love us and you pursue us, but you don't make us love you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.